Hey, uh, this is your first time or your 40th time with us. I am so glad that you are here to worship with us. I have been praying for you. I have been praying that God will simultaneously encourage you and challenge you. I, I am just praying that there is something that's going to take place today that's going to just inspire you, inspire you to want to go and make a difference in the world to follow Jesus. But yet at the same time, I I'm just praying that, that God would challenge you, that, that there'd be something going on inside of you that you'd realize, yeah, I've been living for myself. I've been living selfishly, and God wants to change this about me. And so that's been my prayer for you this week. So to, to do this, we're going to get into 1 Peter. So if you brought a Bible, uh, open it up to 1 Peter. We don't care if it's a paper version or a digital version, but go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. If you didn't bring a Bible, we are going to assume that you have it memorized, all right? So you're amazing. One day I hope to achieve your level. Uh, I'm not there yet. Um, but I, I, you know, I have memorized many things in my life and forgotten them. So just in case you forgot a couple paragraphs or something, I'm going to have the scripture on the screen for you. Okay. So, but seriously, if you don't have a Bible, if you've got a smartphone, download one of the free versions. There's no excuse. Do it, get it with you. That way you always have it with you. Or if you want a paper version, we've got two different translations on the back table. When we are done today, just swing by that table. We'll find the best translation for you. And we want it to be your everyday Bible, not just a decoration at home, but something that you use every single day. All right, so as you're open to 1 Peter, I want to ask you, how many of you um, use like a computer every single day, whether a desktop or a laptop or maybe your phone? Uh, phones are computers. So how many of you use a computer? Like, okay, almost every hand goes up. If you're a student, your hand should have gone up because you guys use Chromebooks and iPads, all right? We all use computers. Now, on your computer, whether it's your phone or your, you know, laptop, whatever it is, there are programs, or maybe you call them apps, applications. On those apps are settings. When you install it, it's going to operate a certain way. And if you want, you can sometimes go in and change the settings, like set some of your own, but it ships, it gets installed with a default setting. And that's how the program is going to operate. It, years ago, when I was working as a worship pastor for a small little church plant in Colorado, I had a side biz business of web design. And so I used, uh, there was this company called Macromedia. They had a couple of really well-known software packages. Dreamweaver was their flagship product, but I used Fireworks primarily. I would design it in Fireworks, and then I'd, you know, it'd splice it all up and ship it over to Dreamweaver for me. And it was through Dreamweaver I would put it on the web. But I was in Fireworks pretty much every day. And so I knew this program in and out. Well, one day I'm using fireworks and it won't work. Like I'd click on something and instead of the normal thing happening, something else would happen. Or I'd click something and I'd get a dialogue box saying, you can't do that. And it, this just kept going on and on for several minutes. And finally, I couldn't take it any longer. And so I'm a Mac user, so they call it the preferences. I think it's on PC, it's called settings. But I, I opened up the preferences and somehow fireworks reverted all the way back to the default settings. Everything that I had changed, the way I wanted it to operate, it just ignored. Now, I don't think Macromedia was out to pull an April Fool's joke on me. I don't think fireworks was trying to ruin my day. It just somehow got reset and went back to the default. I think humans are a little bit like apps. I think each of us have a default. If some of you, maybe your default is to be a homebody. Like if you have a choice, go out and do something exciting or stay home and read a book or watch a movie, you're picking home. 
I mean, to you, relaxation includes sweats, t-shirt, you know, something nice to drink, and that's your idea of relaxation. But some of you, that would drive you nuts. Like, just, you'd feel confined, like you're in jail. It's like, no, no, there's a world to explore. Let's go hike, let's go see, let's, let's shop, let's do something. Your default is to be active. Now, neither one of those is right or wrong, but it's your default. Now, you can act outside that default. The, the homebody, yeah, they can go out, they could go to a concert, they could go hiking. But if they continue to do a lot of activity, they're going to find themselves just getting drained, and they're going to want to revert back to their default. Or, or the active person, yeah, they could go on vacation, they could like sit at the beach, read a book, but eventually it's going to drive them nuts. And finally, they're just going to be like, I can't take it anymore. I need to get back to my default. Your default, it's set by your personality. It's set by your background. It's set by experiences. But we all have a default. But when it comes to spiritual things, we also have a default. However, the scripture says that unlike these other defaults where they can have a wide variety, we all start life with the same default. It, the Bible teaches us that we start with a default of sin, of self. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing a letter to uh, some friends in, in Rome, you don't have to turn to this, I'll, I'll have it on the screen, but he quotes from the Old Testament what this spiritual default state is like. And he, he quotes from a, a number of sources out of the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, isn't that chipper and happy? Aren't you so glad you came this morning to hear that? You know, like, why isn't that on a, a t-shirt? You know, a Christian t-shirt, or, you know, you got the mug, and like, oh, what's your Bible verse for the day? Uh, no one is righteous. Wow, that's really positive. Uh, yeah, whatever happened to positive radio. Uh, but if you look at this, there's probably something in you that wants to say, no, 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 this, that's not right. That's not accurate. Like, you could think of your grandma. I mean, she was really, really good. I mean, she was a saint, this doesn't describe her. You could think of me, you know, someone else, or maybe someone even in, in your church. You're thinking, they're not like that. But if you really stop and look at this and look at it honestly, you start going through it and you're thinking, man, you know what, though? I, I gave in to that addiction. Yeah, I, I kind of I, I did what I knew I shouldn't do, and I did it anyway. I, I guess I'm not righteous. And yeah, I realize I, I probably should, you know, read my Bible. I, I should go to church. I should go to growth group. But instead, I watched a movie. I slept in. I did something else. I, I guess I'm not seeking God. Or, or you think about how you lost it with your kids. I mean, you just said some really mean things, or you yelled at one of your good close friends, and you said something that you regret. And suddenly you realize, yeah, like my throat is an open grave. Or, or at work or at school, you, you got caught up in the gossip, you began to slander. I mean, in our, in our election cycle, it's really easy to slander one of the presidential candidates. And suddenly you look at it, you're going, ooh, I guess the venom of asps is under my lips. If you're really honest, you start going through this and you realize, 
oh, this is my default. My default is self. It is sin. I, I do these things because it's my default. The reason I'm starting off so pessimistic is because today we're going to be in 1 Peter, and Peter's basically going to tell us to go against this default. The problem is, we could hear it, we could be encouraged, we could be challenged, and like, that's it. I'm just going to go, and I'm going to work harder and do better. And you could do it for a time. The problem is, you're going to get tired. It's going to be hard. And eventually, you're just going to revert back to your default. And you're just going to slip right back into these things that Paul talks about in Romans 3. That's why today, for us to truly understand what Peter's going to say in chapter 3, we're going to have to see that what we need before we can do what he says to do is we actually need to be rewired. We need to be reprogrammed. We need a new code inside of us, a new default. And as we shift to that new default, now we can go and do what Peter calls us to do. But I'm going to warn you, it's hard. It means surrender. It means kind of giving up. But I tell you what, it's worth it. Because we're talking in this series about making this uphill climb. That everything worthwhile is uphill. But we can't make it on our own. We need to be rewired. So let's pray. So Father, as, I, uh, as we come into uh, your scriptures, as we come to hear what you have said through Peter to an audience a couple thousand years ago, and yet to us even to this day, I pray that our spiritual ears would be open. Uh, for anyone in here that, that has been operating with a default of self, this could be uncomfortable. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work, that this wouldn't be about what I want to say, but this is about what you have to say to your people, because you know these people, you know their names, you know their stories, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, you know their sins, and yet you love them. And I believe that you have something great for them. And so I pray that they would be open to allowing you today to encourage them, but to also challenge them to get in there and do that deep work that only you can do so that you can then do a great work through them. So Father, open us up now to what you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I've invited Lindsay to come up and uh, read to you 1 Peter 3. Uh, I like including others uh, in this. I haven't done it in a while. Besides, she's got a prettier voice than me. So listen up as she reads 1 Peter 3. Great. Thank you, Lindsay. All right, a couple of weeks ago, as we were in the second half of chapter 2, we saw Peter start talking about this idea of giving honor to authorities. And we saw how we are to give honor to the governing authorities, and how and sometimes, like in this political cycle, it's really difficult to do that. How we need to give honor to even personal authorities. Uh, he wrote to slaves and how they were to honor their masters. For us, it's like to honor our bosses or you know, someone else that might be in authority over us. And the way we could give that honor to these authorities in our life was to look at Jesus. Because here's Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. He is the ultimate authority, and yet he willingly came to earth and subjected himself to Pilate, the governor, to the Romans, to, to the Jewish leaders, ultimately to go and die for us. He even, in a sense, submitted to us and our need for sin. I mean, the payment for our sin. And so he went and did it for us. And so he's our example. That's how we can show honor to these authorities. Well, then it's like he kept the, the topic going and starts talking about honor in marriage. And, and he starts talking about how a wife can show honor to her husband and how a husband needs to show honor to his wife. 
And it's almost like he's been talking about, okay, give honor to authorities. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give honor in marriage. And okay, fine. Give honor to everyone. All right? It's like he's just continuing this up. And he says, all right, finally, continue with this culture of honor and do these things. But the problem is, honor is not our natural default. We don't naturally want to give honor. Oftentimes, we naturally want to get honor. We like it when people give us attention or they give us gifts. They somehow say that you matter, you are significant. We kind of like it some way or another. Even if you're a quiet person, you don't want to be up front on stage, you still want some way to know you're loved, you mattered, you want to be honored. And yet Peter's saying, you got to go against the default. You've got to give honor. You need to have a rewriting, a reprogramming, of your default. And he gives us a glimpse by quoting from Psalm 34. Uh, Verses 10, 11, and 12 are a quote there from Psalm 34. In the last verse, verse 12, the first part of it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, if you're paying attention, you'd hear that and say, okay, so the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and yet, Aaron, you just read from Romans 3, which says that no one is righteous. And what's really interesting is this is a quote from Psalm 34, which was written by King David. And Paul quoted from Psalm 14, which was also written by King David. So King David is speaking out of one side of his mouth saying, hey, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And out of the other side of his mouth, oh, but no one is righteous. So is David in conflict with himself? And because Peter and Paul are both quoting him and they're grabbing onto the parts that make their case, are they now in conflict? I mean, because last week, Peter and Paul were in absolute sync when it came to marriage. I mean, we looked at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. We saw marriage. We looked at Ephesians 5. We saw how Paul described marriage. They were on the same page. But now, are they in conflict? No. Because Peter's already established that you need a new programming. You need a new righteousness. And he said that back in chapter 2 as he was looking at Jesus and how to submit to these authorities. Chapter 2, verse 24, Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, by his death, you have been healed. You have been reprogrammed. You've been given a new default. That's what he's saying. That because of what Jesus did, if your faith is in Christ, you are a new you. You're not operating under the old default. Now, it doesn't mean that you're perfect, never going to make a mistake ever again. No. The difference is, though, when you make a mistake, do you fall toward Christ or do you fall toward self? When you sin, when you're selfish, do you confess that or do you hide that? The new default, as God is working in you, is working you more and more towards becoming like Jesus, where you will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so when you mess up, you move toward Christ, and God continues to refine you. But if you're still operating in the old self, the default of of sin, you're going to hide it, you're going to shrink away, and still make it all about you. You need a new default. Now, if you're here today— and you are not a follower of Jesus. I just want you to know, I'm talking primarily to those who do follow Jesus, but I'm glad you're here. We actually have started Riverwood Church for you. 
We, we just didn't have this desire to go and start a church just to steal a bunch of Christians from other churches. To us, that was like the equivalent of starting a club. We had no interest in starting a club. Clubs are great and good. We felt we needed to start a church that helped those who didn't know Jesus to find him and follow him. That's the purpose of Riverwood. So you belong here. You, you, your questions are welcome. This is a safe space to explore and figure this out. But I want you to know that as we look at this, it's written to a bunch of Jesus followers. And, and so it's going to run with the, the expectation, the assumption that the reader already is beginning to follow Jesus and has the Holy Spirit. The, Paul says in that same book, Romans, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in anyone who follows Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. He gives you the power to make this uphill climb towards Christ's likeness. But if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you don't have that spirit there. I'm, I'm praying that God would open your eyes, that even today might be the day that, that it just makes sense. And you'd say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And now the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to empower you to do what Peter's calling us to do. If you're not a follower of Jesus, though, look at this, investigate. Because this is what Peter's going to say. This is what God wants for you. Now, I think there's some really good stuff in here. You could go and adopt it. You could begin to do it. But it's going to take an absolute rewriting of your inner code, of your default, for you to truly accomplish this. And so I want you to listen in and seriously consider, am I ready to follow Jesus? I think he wants me to follow him. Because Peter right here in verse 8 gives us five ways, five things about the new default. The, uh, the new default. In verse 8, and the first one he lists there is to have unity of mind. Unity of mind. The, the Greek word that, uh, or phrase that's there actually is like of one mind. And I don't know why they didn't just translate it of one mind. In fact, a number of translations, they call it harmonious relationships or to be in harmony. Uh, maybe they thought it like the idea of one mind, like we'd all be like Siamese twins or something. And we've all got our own body, but we're all like connected to the brain or something. And so that was too weird for them. So they, they translate it this way. But the idea is that there's just this sense of harmony. You know, in music, I'm a musician. There's this melody. The harmony just fits right with it and enhances it and adds to it. That's what we want. It's what we want in marriage. It's what we want in our friendships. We want, we'd really like to have it at work. And we especially need it in the church. I, because I've been in the church world so long, I have heard all sorts of horror stories. In fact, I remember a candidating at a church down in Kansas for kind of a worship and, and youth position. And the pastor was telling us that before he got there, this church was on the brink of destruction. Like they were about to split because they had been arguing over the color of the carpet in the new, uh, like, multi-purpose room that they built. And they used to also argue over the color of the stationery, that they had arguments over the logo. I, I mean, like, they were bickering and fighting over these small little things. They were not in unity. That revealed that they were operating on the default of self. Because if it's all about you, then you bet you need your color of carpet picked. Because you know that's the best. They got to listen to you because it's all about you. But when you live with this idea of default of, of, towards Jesus, towards the gospel, it's not about you. And, and so you'll find a way to work with others within the church, within your home, even at work. This begins to affect how you do things because it's not about you. It's about others and about this unity of mind. The next thing he lists there is sympathy. When you have sympathy, you, uh, excuse me, you actually feel 
what someone else feels. That means you got to quiet down inside enough to hear what's truly going on with them. I failed at this this week. I was at the W, I did a hard swim workout, and I jumped in the hot tub. And there was a gentleman there that I've seen for the last couple years. I don't know his name. I really should get to know his name. We talked about work, though, off and on. There was a time where he was unemployed. We talked about, you know, the job search. Now he's got something. He's working second shift. And I hadn't seen him in, oh, probably a few months. So I just was checking in with him. Hey, how's the new job going? Oh, my goodness. The dam burst open. It was not going well. And he just began to share and tell me. So, of course, I want to be sympathetic. So I start listening. Pretty soon he's talking about things that I have no idea. Like he's getting really, really technical. And it's just going past me because I don't know his job. I don't understand. And so after a hard workout and I'm sitting in this really warm, comfortable hot tub and the bubbles are kind of massaging my back and I, I lost track. My mind suddenly drifted off somewhere else. And all of a sudden, there's a pause in the conversation. And I realize he, he's looking for like a, oh, really? Like something, some feedback that I'm still with him. And so I, I mumbled something. And it was obviously I said the right thing because he keeps going. And I realized I botched it. Here I am supposed to preach about sympathy. And I was not giving this guy what I'm saying I need to do. We need to give sympathy. You remember last week when we talked about marriage? The, uh, Peter was telling wives, turn down the volume inside yourself. And by the way, he also says to the men, likewise. And so guys, I think this is good for you too. Turn down the volume inside enough that you can hear what's going on with your spouse. That way you can feel what they feel. You can show sympathy. And that sort of sympathy builds unity. All right, so unity of mind, sympathy. The third thing is brotherly love brotherly love. Now, I, I think that, and, and you're going to see this in a moment, I think Peter's arguing that we need to show love to all. But he uses this phrase, brotherly love, because there is this unity, this, I, I guess I should use the word bond, that happens when you begin to follow Jesus. You begin to share something with other Jesus followers. The, the small town that I grew up in, there was, what, 5,000 people, 5,500 in my town, and we had, I think, 23, 22, 23 churches, right? Almost every church averaged, like, 65, 85 people, right? So a bunch of small churches, and none of them got along, right? The Southern Baptists did not like the Charismatics. The Charismatics did not like the mainline. The mainline people didn't like these independents. And, I mean, it was just everyone retreated to their own little tribe. Well, Leanne and I get married. She'd always wanted to be a missionary, so we headed off to Venezuela, and we worked at a school that served the children of missionaries. And it was a boarding school, so these various missionaries would send their kids to school. Well, we would hold parents' nights. I mean, parents' weekend. And so sometimes these parents would come in to see their kids to kind of get a checkup on how are they doing in school. And so we would engage various activities to keep everyone busy and well, on Sunday nights, we would hold these things called singspirations. Anyone know what a singspiration is? All right, yeah, okay, some of you do. We, you know, you, you get together, and someone would call out a hymn number, and we had this librarian who could sit there and sight-read anything. And so we'd sing these hymns, and then someone else would get up, and, and they would, you know, sing a song. And, and it was just an hour or two of mostly music. And then we'd leave. Well, as, as we're done, I would see people just hanging out, talking. And all of a sudden, I'd look, and the Southern Baptists are hanging out and talking with the charismatics, and they, like, like each other. And, and, and these guys seem to be totally getting along. In fact, they're, like, rooting for this other group. Like, wow, God's doing that? Because I realized 
that rather than getting caught up in their own little tribe, their own little doctrinal distinctives, they realized in Venezuela they were all on the same team. They were all there helping people find and follow Jesus. But we had a different experience in Venezuela. When uh, my parents came down for our first Christmas down there, so they flew down, and we decided to go do something. So we went to Merida. It's this uh, kind of city that's up in the mountains. Well, I mean, we were in the mountains, but this was like the only region where there was like snow-capped mountains. I mean, you're talking like one or two inches. Uh, you know, it is Venezuela. But still, there was snow. So it's Christmas time. we got to go see snow. So we head off to Merida. And as we're there doing the touristy thing, we see this other family. And we suspect they're Americans. And, and we see some, the shirt, and we see some English. But then we hear them talk. Without a doubt, they're American. So we strike up a conversation with them. Wouldn't you know it? They were also missionaries. And so we're like, wow, who, who are you with? And then we found out they were with a different religion. Suddenly we felt it. They felt it. We weren't on the same team. Now, it didn't mean that Leanne and I had permission to like treat them rudely, to look down upon them. Oh, how could you believe that? No, imagine... That here they are serving as missionaries in Venezuela, and yet they're having doubts. They're wrestling with their religion. They're finding questions. They're finding, finding cracks in it. And they start wondering, what about Jesus? What if this Jesus thing is really true and real? And then they run into us. But because, whoa, we're not on the same team. We treat them rudely? Do you think they're going to want to go, oh, I'm, a, I'm on board? No. It's if they sense the love of God through us, that they might actually be open to considering it. That's why I think one of the most powerful tools that a church has is not great marketing, not slick presentation. It's love. I think that if someone walks in the doors of a church on a Sunday morning and senses this incredible love among the people, it makes you want to be part of it. That if there is brotherly love, it draws you in. You sense this unity. But you can't just have the love for each other and exclude everyone else. Because by calling, us, by calling for brotherly love, it creates this idea of family. Healthy families always find room for one more. Let me say that again. Healthy families always find room for one more. Whether it's adding another child, or one of your kids grows up and gets married, or, or whether your married kids end up having grandbabies, whether you adopt, healthy families always Find room for one more. And if we are going to be a healthy church family, it means we have to have this brotherly love that always has room for one more. Whether that means on Sundays we set up more chairs, or we add another service, or we find another location where we can get bigger, or you're inviting people to your growth group and it grows, and so you've got to start another growth group. Healthy families always have room for one more because there is brotherly love in it and God will want to add to his family. So we have to show brotherly love. So I, I guess the key is, if you really like a small church, just be a jerk. Don't like anyone and guaranteed to keep it small. But then you're operating on the old self and not on the new default. But if you operate with the new default, Jesus' love comes through and you show brotherly love. And it builds sympathy. It builds unity. It's operating off of the new default. Then next... He says, a tender heart, a tender heart. If you've been impacted by the gospel, your, your eyes have been opened to this whole crazy Jesus story. You, you realize that what Paul said in Romans 3, that no one is righteous, you realize that applies to you. And yet God has shown his mercy to you, that he has shown compassion. He's given you love. 
it should create in you compassion. It should create in with you love. It should cause you to want to give mercy. Because if God would give this to you, a sinner who was separated from him by your sin, but yet God bridged the gap through Jesus, brings you over, it should overwhelm you. And so you should have a tender heart. The, the Bible talks about how like, when you place your faith in Jesus, it's like a circumcision of the heart. The old stony heart, the hard heart, is cut away, removed, so that this heart of flesh, this heart of love, can beat in your chest and it cares for people. It should build within you a tender heart. But not only does it give you a tender heart, next he says it gives you a humble mind. I used to think that humble meant to think low of yourself. You know, that's not really fair to God. Because God clearly thinks a lot of you. That he sent Jesus to die for you, he thinks very, very highly of you. So to think low of yourself is to go against God. To be humble means to think less of yourself. If you're just going about your day all the time, thinking about your schedule, your to-do list, you accomplish something, and all you can do is think about how great you are, now you're not being humble. But if your focus and attention is on others, you will gladly give others credit. So yeah, you may have done something great, but when you see someone else do something just as great or even better, you're not offended. You can like give them credit. You can give them praise because you're thinking of yourself less as you're focusing on Jesus and others. This is the new default, to, to have this unity of mind, to show sympathy, to, to exhibit brotherly love, to have a tender heart and a humble mind. And when you operate in this new default, something happens. And, and Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, Peter says it right there in verse 9. Right after he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Here it is. But on the contrary, bless, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. If you've been around Riverwood for more than 2.4 seconds, you've probably heard me say, go and be a blessing. This is part of where this comes from. God is calling you to go, to be a blessing to others. You are not to exhibit this life all about you. It's to go and really help others and to bless them. And by quoting Psalm 34, he shows us, excuse me, he shows us two ways that this blessing should be seen. In verse 10, it, we see that it should come through our words. We should bless through our words. Verse 10 says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, which I'm going to assume is most of you. I doubt any of you woke up this morning saying, I hope today is really crappy. It'd be really nice if today just sucked. No, I, I think most of you probably were like, you know, I hope today's good. I, I'd really like to love life. I want to see good days. And so if you want to see it, it says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. In other words, you need to bless through your words. And so when you're at work, are you tearing people down? When your kids are disobeying, are you just letting them have it? Or are you speaking words of life? Are you speaking words of encouragement? Are you speaking words that make people want to be around you? Don't speak evil. Speak good. Speak life. Encourage them. But that's got to come from a new default. So as you pour yourself into Jesus, into the gospel, it pours out of you onto others, and your words are a blessing. And also, he says, to keep your lips from speaking deceit. If you're operating out of the old self, you're going to deceive. You're, you're going to lie, because you've got a reputation to protect. But if you've been changed by Jesus, you don't worry so much about your own reputation, because you already know that God loves you so much. And so you can be honest. You can be authentic. You can share where you're struggling. 
And you shouldn't receive a bunch of judgment against you because we're all in the same place. And you, instead, we should be giving brotherly love and seeking to have unity with each other. So be honest. Because as you're being honest, it actually encourages people. And then you're being a blessing. So bless through your words. Next, we see in verse 11, to bless through your action. Uh, Peter, quoting again Psalm 34, says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Are are you letting your actions, like your words, do good? Uh, Are people feeling like as you go and serve, do they sense the love of Jesus through you? Or are you doing things in order to build your own reputation, to do things for yourself? That's not going to draw people to you. It's not going to build unity. In fact, some people are going to feel like you're just selfish, and they're going to see that as evil. Instead, are you doing things to show the love of Christ to others? Do good. And then he also says to seek peace and pursue it. Do your actions show that you are a person of peace? Do do people sense the peace of God through you? Or do your actions bring strife? Is there disunity? Are you always arguing? Or instead, are you seeking to serve, to understand, to listen, to bring peace? Because peace is a blessing to others. That's why today, oh, I can't, I can't go on to that. There's a, ble- there's a hidden thing inside of all this. There, there's actually something for you in this. And it's back there in verse 9. Right after uh, Peter says, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You hear it? When you go and bless others, you receive a blessing. When you bless others, you receive the blessing of friendship. You receive the blessing of respect and admiration. You receive the blessing of love. You receive the blessing of knowing that God is using you. There's no greater feeling than to know that God is doing a great work in you and is doing a great work through you. When you see God using you to bless others, it brings joy, it brings awe, it brings humbleness, it does something in you. And that is a blessing. That is why I want so much to see you guys love life. I want to see you have good days. And I know that comes through Christ. It comes through the gospel. That's why I say regularly, go and be a blessing. So today I say the same thing. Go. Go and be a blessing. Be a blessing through seeking unity of mind. Be a blessing through giving sympathy. Be a blessing by showing brotherly love. Be a blessing with a tender heart and a humble mind. Be a blessing through your words. Be a blessing through your actions. Just go and be a blessing. Go and follow Jesus. And so, Father, I pray you'd empower us to do just that, to follow Jesus. God, I confess that too often I want to slip back into that default of self. Um, I want my own comfort. I want my own pleasure. I, I want these things. And yet you call me to something so much greater. Uh, you've given me a wife that needs to have this unity of mind with me. You've given me kids that, that need to sense your love through me. You, you've given me a church family that, that needs to be instilled with a tender heart and a humble mind. And they're going to see it through their pastor. So, Father, I pray that you change me. But at the same time, I pray that you would change each of us here. Because you have a unique story that you're writing through each one of us. 
I pray for anyone here today that has not placed their faith in Jesus. Maybe Jesus is a side thing, it's a Sunday thing, but it's not the real thing. It's not who they are. I pray that today, right now, they would hear you calling them through your Holy Spirit, and they would sense you opening their eyes, opening their mind, and this whole crazy story about God becoming human, taking on flesh, and living a sinless life, but going to die in a sinner's death in our place, it's preposterous. And yet it's true. And right now, they're sensing that they need to give their life to follow you. So, Father, enable them to do that. May they confess that they are a Romans 3 person, that they've been operating on the default of self and sin. But they confess it. They give it to you, knowing that by placing their faith in Jesus, their sin was now killed. They died of sin, and they now live to righteousness. That the righteousness of Christ is given to them. And they are now pure and perfect in your sight as you continue to change them from the inside out, molding and shaping them back into the image of Jesus so that they would go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. I pray that today is the day that they confess that, that they would pray it, and today is the day of their rebirth, of their reprogramming, and you'd begin to help them to live on the new default. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Jesus who are here today. And they've not been operating on the new default. And today, they're feeling challenged. They're feeling conviction. I pray, Father, they would sense your mercy. They'd sense your forgiveness. And, and that they would, would be inspired to go and live like Jesus lived. But to do that, they seek after Jesus. And so that's why, Father, as we come to the communion table, this is evidence of your love. It's evidence of your mercy. It, it's the evidence that you want to change us from the inside out. And so, Father, I pray that as we partake, that that we would remember that this was Jesus' body, which was broken for us, his blood, which was shed for us, that it's all been paid. Our sins are forgiven, and we are now invited to live freely, to go and to love and to bless. So, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for what you're doing in us. God, I pray that you'd not only make Riverwood a, a church that just impacts our world, But it's really the people of Riverwood that would go into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods, into their homes, and they would be a blessing. That's why, God, I ask that through this act of communion, you'd remind us of this deep work that you have done for us and in us so that you can also then go to do that great work through us for the blessing of others and for the blessing of us. So, God, thank you for this time to worship through the scriptures, through song, through prayer. May you continue to be glorified through the bit that takes place here now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.